Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Westminster, on demand via the Bloomberg Business app and wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a special edition of Bloomberg Westminster in which we're uh, looking at what Chancellor Rishi Sunak has been saying and getting a sense of what it means for British business. Did you want to just outline for me, Seb, what exactly we've heard? Yeah, so three key things here, and all of this targeted towards, well, mostly towards places in uh, Tier 2. This is the squeezed middle, if you like, of uh, coronavirus restrictions. So the big thing is that job support is going to become more generous. So now the employer contribution is going to be cut from 33% to 5%. So businesses uh, having to pay less in terms of wages to their employees, the government topping up that difference. Employees also only going to have to work 20% down from 33% before. Uh, we're talking about grants as well for firms that are affected by tier two rules. That's also going to be paid retrospectively back to August. And that's important because there are places like Manchester that have been in tier two effectively for a long time. So there are going to be companies there that are also eligible for these sorts of grants and then there was more news for the self-employed as well so the income support is going to be doubled for them from 20 percent to 40 percent although it's worth remembering that a lot of this was much higher under the original furlough scheme so it's been cut and then raised a little bit again Right, well, let's bring in some expert analysis of all this. I'm very pleased to say we've got with us again Bloomberg's executive editor for Europe, David Merritt, but also the head of Bloomberg Economics, Stephanie Flanders. Welcome to both of you. Stephanie, first, just give us a sense. Do you think this is meeting the kind of need? Is it the kind of thing people wanted and expected? Or has the Chancellor somewhat under-delivered at this point? I think that uh, sort of within reasonable expectations, he is announcing a significant ratcheting up of what was uh, his sort of revised plan that we we only heard a a few weeks ago, which by most people's reckoning was much smaller than expected. So I think that, and he's sort of grappling with the basic logic, which is, you know, it's one thing to say that companies need to get used to the uh, change conditions and that jobs jobs that are going to be obsolete shouldn't be kept afloat just by the government. But that argument just doesn't fly in a part of the country which is under clearly exceptional rules and whose business is being affected by those. And I think it is odd to me that someone as shrewd as him uh, took as long as this to to tumble to that. I think the actual, I mean, it's not on the level of the furlough scheme, but I think that's uh, to be expected. But the combination of the grants, and I think significantly the increase in the generosity of the job support scheme, I think will could be significant because employers had said in response to the new scheme, look, you're you're not really giving us an incentive to keep someone to, to keep on a large number of people. Would be better off keeping on one person full time and getting rid of a couple of other people. This, I think, by 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 significantly reducing the employer contribution, it could make a difference. Mm, all right. And uh, David, I mean, from the Chancellor, we heard no apologies for changing circumstances. And certainly the circumstances have changed. Uh, and then from the Shadow Chancellor, we heard uh, an allegation that this was a patchwork of poor ideas rushed out at the last minute. There's no doubting that uh, a lot has come out very recently. The situation has changed very quickly. Is the government really in control of this situation? 
Well, I think it's interesting listening to them both there. You know, Annalisa Dodds, that Labour's uh, shadow chancellor, makes the not unreasonable point that it's only when London recently went into these tier two restrictions um, that suddenly the government's finding an extra bit of money. Obviously, huge parts of the north, Greater Manchester, been under these restrictions for many months. See, the chance to try to diffuse that accusation by backdating uh, these payments. But the question is, is it too late for some of these companies that have been struggling since uh, the summer under these rules? Uh, perhaps many of those jobs have already gone. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see um, on that. But, you know, it, it, the situation clearly has changed in the, in the last couple of weeks. The numbers have got exponentially worse. The infection is soaring in parts of the country. Hospitals uh, around various locations around the north particularly are filling up with patients. And clearly um, the game has changed and the government decided they've got to find more money for this and act. This is on top of, of course, what I think he referred to, the £200 billion of special uh, support that the government has already poured into the economy. They're going to have to tap the markets for some more bond sales already at a record um, but it's clearly not enough and this argument that's been in government over the last few weeks about whether to pour more money into it clearly the situation requires uh, the Chancellor to open his checkbook again um, and that's what he's had to do and it is a significant amount of extra support clearly. Stephanie let me pick up that theme with you because one of the issues is is this too little too late uh, have we got a sense right now of where the uk economy is how many businesses have or are about to go to the wall and whether this could be of any uh, any way of pulling them back or is it ha- have too many gone already well i think i mean the government measures measures to date have clearly helped to keep a lid on unemployment but not prevented it from increasing uh, quite a long way and i think most of the city expectations are now expecting it to get to at least seven percent um, by by the end of the year. But I think uh, David makes a good point that there are a lot of uh, companies, you know, if you're Leicester, you've been under these restrictions since the beginning of the summer. And I think that's what's been so difficult for businesses is that these so-called temporary restrictions, there's, there's very few cases where they've been rolled back um, so those that went in first are really are really suffering. I think what we've been worried about, and Bloomberg Economics, we developed these high-frequency indicators for the economy quite quickly in response to the crisis, because obviously the normal data, you can't stick around for a month waiting for it to come out. And what we noticed was that the UK sort of started to flatten out in terms of the sort of the first, the V-shaped bit of the recovery around the same time as other countries in Europe, despite having come out of lockdown rather later. Um, And that is, I'm afraid, as we go into the second wave, which other countries are also facing, we're sort of 5% below where they were uh, when they were coming into this. So in that sense, I would say we're a bit gloomier about um, where the UK is now, and let alone where it's going, um, than we are with some of the other countries across across the channel. Uh, and Stephanie, the stats are staggering here. So yet UK national debt at a record two trillion pounds at the end of last month, borrowing at 103 and a half percent of GDP levels we haven't seen since the 1960s. And then we're hearing these calls from the likes of the IMF, leading central bankers around the world, saying it's too early to think about stopping spending. We have to spend our way through this crisis. Is that the mindset you see from the British government? And, and I ask this in the context of things like uh, the Marcus Rashford campaign around school meals and the situation in Manchester, where on some small occasions they're taking the opportunity to cut costs. 
Well, you know, the Treasury is uh, hardwired to try not to uh, spend money. And so I think they are really, you can, you can almost hear them uh, struggling with this in real time as they're forced to, to, to give up the various, sort of po- the various sort of landing posts that they had planted in the sand. Um, I think the, uh, what we are seeing is an enormous amount of a, a, a great um, consensus that governments need to borrow more now, spend more now, in order to prevent uh, severe scarring from this recession. And I think that's what's animating the IMF. You know, the International Monetary Fund has not previously been known for its great support for for high levels of borrowing um, and fiscal stimulus, but they think there is a much greater risk looking at historically what happens with these with recessions uh, of even much smaller than this of having real damage uh, coming out of this pandemic which then costs the exchequer as well so that's the key point that i think treasury also has to get its head around that if they if they get it wrong now if they do too little if they've lost these businesses now they will be paying a price for that in fiscal terms as well down the road and David, what about the political price in all this? Because we were talking earlier in the programme about the difficulties of keeping on board the, the MPs in what was, of course, the Red Wall, now the Blue Wall, uh, the people who were told that, that there would be levelling up going on. Uh, they've clearly been angry about what's been happening in the past. Can they be won back over, do you think, now? Well, yes, I, as Stephanie said, you know, the Treasury's hardwired not to spend money, but of course the Tory party used to be hardwired not to spend lots of money as well. You know, this is the party that fought the, the election after the financial crisis on the on the basis of austerity. And it's been fascinating to watch that argument dissipate and for them to all rally around this cause of, of spending records amount of cash uh, to keep the economy afloat. But you saw a little bit of a glint, didn't you, last night of the old Tory party when they voted down re- uh, resolutely this idea of funding some of the, the poorest students to get free food over the school holidays and a, a tiny amount of money that compared to what's being spent um, elsewhere. But there is clearly a bit of a battle still in the Tory party ranks about this. And then, of course, the people who put Boris Johnson in Downing Street with that whopping majority last December come from some of the poorer constituencies, places that never voted Tory before. They know that they've only been lent their votes. And then this unedifying rows that we've seen over the last few days between the mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Um, I don't. I saw a, a lady on the from the north of England on the BBC News use a bit of an expletive about the government last night. An 83-year-old who said she was so furious about how the north was being treated. Those are very bad uh, looks and very bad sound bites to be across the media for Boris Johnson when he's trying to keep all those voters uh, on board. So that's the kind of dynamics at play. You've got the old Tory party uh, instinct around cutting spending and trying to create a lean yeah. state, but the needs of the moment which is to really splurge like never before uh, david just briefly i'm seeing it go on stephanie sorry i was just saying i mean the irony of course is that there's some figureheads you know this uh, 10 years ago we wouldn't have had these kind of quite these quite significant figures these mayors um on the airwaves taking on the government in this way the likes of andy burnham or andy street in birmingham who of course is uh, a, a conservative, but it was actually the George Osborne that helped set up these city-region deals, which they were required. The Treasury actually required cities to elect mayors in order to get a little bit more control over their finances. And the result is that there's some actual, there's some local leadership in these cities 
which we're now seeing um, seeing quite clearly. The only thing I'd say on the on, one thing I would say to watch in the response to today's announcement is that the Treasury is still trying very hard to target this support to particular areas, particular affected companies. But of course, if you're a supplier to you know if you make sandwiches for a shop which has been severely affected in a in a city um you're going to want yeah. some support even if you're not actually in in one of these tier two areas so i suspect that's still going to be an area which is going to be a, a problem for them the countdown has begun this may a thousand global leaders will gather in doha for the qatar economic forum powered by bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics other than the headline, which is, of course, uh, the updated finances, the updated funding we're hearing from the Chancellor in terms of grants for local authorities, uh, top ups for the job support scheme and the self-employed as well. Yeah, well, of course, uh, another aspect, of course, of all this, and we heard in our previous discussion about suggestions that government may be quite penny-pinching in some areas as well, and perhaps uh, that's being seen in terms of transport for London, because Sadiq Khan, the mayor, is threatening to tip TfL into bankruptcy if the government doesn't approve a £5 billion rescue package. The mayor of London said he's prepared to plunge the city's transport network into Section 114. Now, in case you didn't know what that is, it's a process for public authorities that's the equivalent of a company going bust. That would mean a reduction of many rail and bus services. The Department for Transport has threatened to take direct control of TfL unless the mayor accepts a package of unpopular measures. So I think this confrontation, which we were talking about, as I say, with yeah. Stephanie Flanders and David Merritt, between local government, which the Tories themselves, of course, empowered, and national government does seem to be going on. It is really hotting up, isn't it? I mean, granted, the Mayor of London is the oldest of all of these positions. It's been around for 20 years now as a position. Uh, but we are really seeing these local leaders standing up to government. And this threat to take TfL into bankruptcy, that's a huge move. But of course, the move yesterday from the Department of Transport that you mentioned, uh, taking direct control of TfL, that will be pretty dramatic as well. So we're seeing a lot of threats in this one. And Londoners will be watching this one very carefully because one of the things on the table is uh, is, is a cut to, uh, to transport to services which means more crowded buses more crowded tubes and another thing is increased council tax to pay for all of this so it's something that could hit Londoners incredibly directly Roger you mentioned penny pinching I'm going to give you the opposite here a multi-millionaire former conservative donor who was Rishi Sunak's boss at Goldman Sachs back in the day has now emerged as a surprise contender to be chairman of the BBC this is according to the Telegraph his name's Richard Sharp Uh, he's also been an informal advisor on COVID-19 to Sunak since April Uh, that follows George Osborne ruling himself out of the job Uh, apparently he doesn't have time to fit it in and then ministers increasing the salary of this position to £160,000 a year for the four days a week role to encourage a wider range of candidates. But we do know that they want somebody conservative to tackle what they perceive as left-wing bias within the BBC. So it doesn't look particularly good, does it, when they are upping the salary for this very senior job at the same time as trying to cut costs elsewhere? 
Well, apparently the reason that they did it initially was, of course, it was meant for Charles Moore, the very famous yeah. uh, biographer of uh, Margaret Thatcher, of course, and columnist and former newspaper editor. Not a great ally of the BBC in the general sense. In fact, I think he even was taken to court at one point for not paying his licence fee. But then there was a, a swift revamp and a, an attempt to try and push up the money. Uh, but in the end, he said he didn't want it. Then George Osborne was labelled for it. He doesn't want it. I have to say, this seems to be a saga that's going on and on, and rather painfully, too. If no one wants this job, one's forced to say perhaps they're not really putting it out there in a popular way. But let's come on to another issue, which is to do, of course, with visas and immigration. Now, that's a massive issue for the Conservative Party. And the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has now rejected the advice of her own immigration advisers to open UK borders to cheap foreign builders after Brexit. That's in today's Sun newspaper. Experts on the Migration uh, Advisory Committee wanted to relax measures to fill a skills shortage. But the Home Secretary said she'd prefer Brits who have lost jobs because of the pandemic to retrain to fill the roles. Now, separately, the Home Office has also announced that European criminals who've served a year in jail will be automatically barred from entering the UK, even as a tourist. Now, Labour is calling the measures a fantasy because it says access to many criminal databases hasn't yet been secured in negotiations with the EU. But uh, you have to say so, but it does make a good headline. It does. It's real tabloid fodder, this, isn't it? I can think of certain sections for society that will absolutely lap this sort of thing up, particularly as it reopens that old debate. When you have a shortage of skills, do you fill it as a priority, even that if that means bringing in immigrants, or do you wait a bit, retrain Brits, allow them to uh, to, to get jobs that they might have lost in the past? Uh, which one is more important? And clearly we can see the side that Priti Patel is taking here, and it's very different to what her advisors are. Indeed, indeed. Well, now, let's bring in Christine Jardine, who's Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West and the party's Treasury spokesperson. Christine, very good afternoon to you. Thanks so much for being with us. I know you're hot foot from the House of Commons, where, of course, earlier we heard on this programme uh, from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and got the response, of course, from his opposite number on the Labour benches, uh, uh, Annalise Dodds, to his new plans to try to help business caught up in uh, these restrictions, particularly the Tier 2 restrictions. Uh, let me ask you then, Christine, as the party's Treasury spokesperson, what do the Liberal Democrats make of it? Um, well, you know, we welcome the fact that he's beginning to realise that uh, what we said a few months ago was correct. But it's too late for too many people. And what we still would like to see him do is, do is stick with the original job retention scheme, protect jobs, bring in the exclusion. Um, let, you know, business needs clarity. Business needs confidence that the government's in control. And right now they don't have it. So we think he needs to make sure that he has a plan for the next six months, a strategy, rather than this piecemeal approach, which is helping nobody. Uh, Christine, you say that, uh, good to have you, first of all, but you say that um, a, a lot of it is too little too late. Some of it, though, is retrospective. I'm looking particularly at the grants for companies that are hit by Tier 2 rules. So there are places like Manchester that have been under those rules for a little while now. Companies there are going to be allowed to apply for these. So it's it, it's almost as if they were introduced a couple of months ago. Well, it's not for companies. How are they going to do that, I would say, for, for companies that have already gone out of business? Um, it, you know, it's... It's all very well to apply it retrospectively, but if the company no longer exists, if people have been made redundant, it's not quite that simple. Um, the other thing is that this could have been done two months ago. This could have been done before that. The government had the whole summer to look at improving test and trade, to look at the job retention scheme, how they kept it going through the winter. They had all summer 
to ensure that business had the clarity, the confidence that the government was in control, that they had a strategy instead of which it's now abundantly clear that the government only thought six to eight months ahead. They didn't think through the winter and they didn't allow for the second wave that everybody knew was coming. Now, we're in the odd position in politics in this country uh, that we don't want the government to fail. We want the government to get this right. We need the government to get this right. But the frustrating thing for a lot of us is that we are saying, why don't you do this? Please do this. And they're saying no. And then a couple of weeks later, we get a partial use on And we say, well, actually, you might be right. They need to listen sooner and act sooner. And business can't operate in this. I, you know, I was speaking to the, the Federation of Small Businesses this morning, who seem they've now been hit, a lot of their members, by what they call a double whammy. Um, they've been excluded and are still excluded under this latest plan from any support because their directors, the businesses are too small for various reasons. And they're not now getting the bounce back loans that the government is offering from the banks. Um, so they've been hit by a double whammy. But, but Christy, I mean, you're, you're talking... Just... And take control. Just to, just to put the point, though, that the government, I'm sure, would say is that, yes, they keep changing in a way, but they have to because they're changing to, according to the circumstances. No one actually knew when the second wave would come in or the way it would. People could predict, but no one really knew. And they've got to account for government finances, account for the, the public purse. They've got to take these things into account. They can't just open up everything in the way that you and Labour seem to want. What is frustrating for us about it is that the very things which the Chancellor is saying now, well, we'll have to do this. He was told about months ago, it was pointed out, um, not just by politicians, but by business, that he would need to do more than he was doing. And by, you know, these constant U-turned patchwork, um, it's not a consistent, clear message of how business can get themselves out of this the country is giving. What we need now is leadership. We need a Chancellor and a Prime Minister who are leading the country. Now, it's significant, I think, that the Prime Minister came in and sat on the front bench today while the Chancellor made this statement. He knows, the Prime Minister knows how significant it is and how difficult a situation we're in now and how important it is that we have leadership. And like I said, everybody not just in the House of Commons, but everybody across this country needs this government to succeed. But if it's going to do that, it has to listen to the advice when it gets it and not wait until it becomes clear that they should have taken the advice and then take it. Uh, Christine, if it were you standing up there at the podium today and delivering this, in terms of spending, in terms of paying for this, what would your philosophy be? Is it spend whatever is necessary now to get through the crisis and worry about it later? Or would you take a more, I say, small C conservative approach closer to what the government did do? Well, I think, you know, we're seeing that um, borrowing rates at the moment are at their lowest ever. And what we need is a Chancellor who's going to invest in getting us out of this. Um, if the economy suffers too much in the, or it, it suffers very badly in this and people lose their jobs and they lose their skills, we will not be in a position to recover fully at the end of this. What you have to do is strengthen the economy so that it is able to do that and also transition into a greener economy. What's forgotten in this that strikes me? 
is that this is a massive challenge. But we ha- we could turn the challenge to advantage in some ways by bringing in greening measures, by looking at the transition to yeah. uh, zero carbon. All of that we could be doing. And it would be an investment in our children's future. We all know this is going to be difficult. We all know the economy is not going to look the same at the end of this. Not just our economy, nobody's economy. But we have to do, to use the Chancellor's own work, whatever it takes to get us through this. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.